Morning, church. Morning. Go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to John 7, verses 32 through 36. John 7, verses 32 through 36 is going to be our text for this morning. And as you are turning there, I just want to have a little bit of a pastoral moment with you all. Um, I'm not your pastor this morning, I'm just your preacher, but those two certainly overlap. And I want to remind us of this truth. Every text has an application for every believer. Every text of Scripture has an application for every believer. Now, why do I say that this morning? I say that because as we come to John 7, verses 32 through 36, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is not the most glamorous text in all of Scripture. It is a short text. It is a simple text. And as I was trying to prepare the sermon, I, I realized in my own heart that it's kind of difficult to apply. At least it was in my study. And as I was trying to get some application out of it and I was praying to the Lord, he really convicted me. And he reminded me of the words of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So as we look at this text this morning, I want us to remember that every text of Scripture has an application for every believer. That is true of Genesis, that is true of Leviticus, that is true of the minor prophets, and this is true of this tiny little story in John 7 as well. So with all that being said, let us read our text for this morning. John 7, 32 through 36. This is written by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says this. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that it is to look at these short, simple verses in John 7. Lord, I thank you so much this morning for your gathered congregation. But I thank you so much um, for this building and this roof over our, our heads that we, that we get to worship in, Lord. Lord, before I begin this morning, Lord, I, I want to pray for two things. Lord, firstly, I pray for me. Lord, I pray that you would guard me from pride and that you would guard me from error. Lord, I pray that the words that I speak, Lord, they would not be my words, but that they would be yours and yours alone. Lord, remind me that I am a mere vessel for your truth and nothing more. Lord, I also pray for the members and guests here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. Lord, I pray as my childhood pastor prayed, Lord, that you would touch them at their point of greatest need. Lord, I pray that you would unblind blinded eyes and that you would unstop deaf ears, that we might see and that we might hear what you have for us today. Lord, and I pray that if anyone in this room does not know you, that before they exit the doors of this building, they would repent and believe of the gospel, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1678, John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. You all know this. Many of the people who have stand up here uh, at this pulpit have mentioned The Pilgrim's Progress. 
But if any of you don't know what the Pilgrim's Progress is, it is a book written by John Bunyan, the 17th century, and it is written as an allegory of the Christian life. So the main character, Christian, he walks through all of these different journeys as he makes his way towards the celestial city, as he makes his way towards heaven. The book starts out with with Christian reading this book, and as he reads this book, which is the Bible, he he realizes the big weight that is on his back, right? Which which is a metaphor for sin. So what Christian does is he is he he's in the field and he and he finds this guy named Evangelist, and this guy Evangelist tells him that there is a way that he can be released of his burden if he runs towards the light, towards this wicked gate, that he might find the cross so that the burden can roll off his back. So Christian puts his fingers in his ears, doesn't listen to any of the distractions around him, and he runs towards Christ. And a couple pages later, he finds a man by the name of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And to be honest with you, this is one of my favorite characters in the entire book. Because Mr. Worldly Wiseman is one of the many people who tries to turn Christian off of the path of Christianity. Mr. Worldly Wiseman addresses Christian and says, hey, there's another way to get the burden off your back. Don't follow Christ. Follow what Bunyan refers to as the way of legalism and moralism. The way of legalism and moralism. So what Christian does is he says, okay, I'll give that a shot. And he starts climbing the hill of legalism and moralism only to quickly find out that the hill is way too high. So he gives that up up and continues on his path to Christ. Now why do I share that story? I share that story because there's something very interesting that Mr. Worldly Wiseman says to Christian. And as I was preparing this text, I think it really fit the theme of the text. I think it fit the main point that Christ is trying to make. Mr. Worldly Wiseman, he He looks at Christian in the book and he says, Weak men like you who do go on meddling with the things that are too high for them suddenly fall into distractions, which do not only unman men, but run them upon desperate ventures to obtain what they do not want. Now, that is written in 17th century English and it's a little hard for us to understand. But what Mr. Worldly Wiseman is doing here is he's looking at Christian and he is saying, why in the world are you doing what you're doing? Why are you following the ways of Christ? They are foolishness, they are nonsense, and they are pointless. So follow my way instead. Here in John 7, we find a group of people called the Pharisees. And these Pharisees, along with the chief priests and the unbelieving Jews we find in this text, are going to be our worldly wise men for this morning. They're going to be the people who look upon Christ and his way and his gospel and call it utter nonsense. They do not understand it. It is foolishness to them. And they try to lead other people astray. And Jesus Christ, as we're going to find, is going to proclaim to these people that they are not on the right track. But before we begin, let us realize where we are in John 7. Uh, Clay has preached the last three sermons. We've found that Jesus is, he came to the, the Feast of Booths, this, this great feast that is supposed to commemorate the Israelites wandering in the wilderness while simultaneously rejoicing in the harvest season. So Jesus' brothers tell him to go to this feast in public. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to go, but decides later to go in private. And he starts teaching. 
And he teaches the people, as he often does, and many people have many different responses. Some people wonder, is this really the Christ? Some people even believe in Christ. And that's what Clay spoke on last week. But this week we're going to see that there's a group of Pharisees, there's a group of chief priests, and there's a group of unbelieving Jews. These worldly wise men who do not understand the ways of Christ and find them to be utter foolishness. Clay has been doing these sermon summaries, so I'm going to follow his pattern here. These two sentences summarize my entire sermon. Worldly wise men are unable and ignorant to enter the kingdom of heaven. Worldly wise men are unable and ignorant to enter the kingdom of heaven. In response to this truth, we must praise the God who is in heaven, rejoice in the God who has mercifully let us into heaven, and minister to the people who are currently not going to heaven. So let's begin with our first point. Our first point for this morning is this, is that worldly wise men cannot love the person of Christ. Worldly wise men cannot love the person of Christ. Read with me verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. For those of you who haven't been in Sunday school for a little while, let us remember who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the legalists, which I'll explain in a minute, are the legalists of Jesus' day who tried to obtain salvation by the means of their own laws and traditions. What the Pharisees did is they took the Old Testament law, right, and they put a fence around it. They made these man-made traditions. And they said, if we follow these things, we will climb our own ladder to heaven. If we wash our hands in the right way, if we only take a certain number of steps on the Sabbath, that's how we're going to get to heaven. They took the Old, Old Testament law, they, they twisted it, and they made it their own, and they proclaimed that salvation was found by your own merit. Well, these Pharisees in this story, they hear the mutterings or the whisperings of the people in the crowd. Well, what are these people in the crowd saying? We back up to verse 31. It says that many of these people believed in Jesus, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You see, the crowds here are starting to wonder, right? As Clay preached on last week, they're starting to wonder, is Jesus really the Christ? Or if the Christ comes, will he be like this guy? And some of them actually do believe in Christ, and they're all starting this chatter of like, hey, maybe this guy actually is who he says he is. But for the Pharisees, that's a big problem. Because the Pharisees preach a different gospel. The Pharisees have a different political platform. And the Pharisees are power hungry. And Jesus is threatening their power, threatening their fame, threatening all that which they have worked to obtain. So what do they do? The text tells us that the Pharisees, they go and grab the chief priests who were also more than willing to arrest and try Jesus. Interestingly, the chief priests and the Pharisees usually didn't get along, but here they are unified by their cause to arrest and try and kill Jesus. So the Pharisees, they, they hear the mutterings of the people, they go to the chief priest and they grab the temple officers to arrest him. Most likely these officers referred to are kind of the temple security team, if you will. Um, they're trying to keep everybody in line, keep the peace at this big festival. So what we find here 
is that some people respond to Christ in a positive way, and some people respond to Christ in a negative way. This is the first time in at least this chapter of John where they actually take the next practical step to murder Jesus. There's been thoughts and rumors of people trying to kill Jesus, but here the Pharisees go, you know what? This has got to a tipping point. We are now going to take the first step in trying to arrest him, trying to murder him, and trying to end his legacy here on this earth. That's what's going on. But before we move on to our next point, I want to apply this real fast. As we realize that what Jesus did got him persecuted. What Jesus said got him persecuted. And we see this all throughout the Bible, right? Or all throughout the New Testament, rather. Right? This, this theme of persecution. And what I want to ask us this morning is when was the last time we were persecuted for the gospel? Jesus proclaimed the truth. Jesus lived a righteous life. And ultimately he was killed. But when is the last time we were persecuted for the gospel? And I'm not talking about death threats. I'm not talking about somebody robbing you or threatening you. In this American country we live in, we're thankful for the religious freedom we have. We're able to proclaim our faith without political or anything like that, unrest. But I think there are ways in which we are persecuted daily if we are truly living out our faith. There's people at work that can just treat us differently. I know back when I worked at Culver's in Wisconsin, all the time, I just have people who, who would just push me aside and even hate me for what I believed in. There are other things that can happen, right? We have friends who don't involve us in certain conversations because they don't want to be completely open with us because they, they know what we believe in. Or maybe even a neighbor who, who just hates us because they know we're living a godly life. I read a book in seminary, have no clue which one because I read too many, but it said something like this. It said, if you aren't being persecuted for the gospel, you ought to question whether you are truly living it out or not. I think that's a really, really good measuring stick for our lives. Because if we do the right things, if we proclaim the truth just as Christ did here, we will have persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 promises us that. So are you being persecuted for the gospel? These worldly wise men hate the things of God. They hated Christ. They will hate us. They will hate what we proclaim if we are proclaiming the gospel. And just as they persecuted Christ, they will persecute us. Our first point for this morning is that worldly wise men cannot love the person of Christ. Our second point for this morning is that worldly wise men cannot enter the kingdom of Christ. Worldly wise men cannot enter the kingdom of Christ. This is, I think, the main point of the passage, verses 33 and 34. In response to these officers coming to arrest Jesus, John doesn't talk about where they're exactly at. Maybe Jesus sees them off in the distance, or maybe in his sovereignty he just knows that he's about to be arrested. But Jesus then said, verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Here, I think in these verses, if you're taking notes, we find two truths about Christ's divinity and two truths about man's depravity. Two truths about Christ's divinity and two truths about man's depravity. Firstly, let's look at Christ's divinity. In verse 33, he, he outrightly says, I will be with you a little longer. What we learn here about Christ's divinity is that Jesus is on earth no longer, at least in a physical bodily sense. 
right? We know that by his Holy Spirit, he dwells within us and with us. But Jesus' physical body has ascended to heaven. And, and that's what he's talking about here, right? These, these officers are coming to arrest Jesus. And, and he looks at all of the crowds and says, I will be with you a little longer. Right? And notice what Jesus does here. He knows that he's about, he knows that there's people making his way to arrest them. We know that it's not Jesus' time yet, so he's not going to be arrested yet. But Jesus knows this. And what does he do? He doesn't run away. He doesn't summon angels to help him. He doesn't tell his disciples to raise up their swords. He takes the opportunity to teach them about who he is, as he so often does. So he says, I will be with you a little longer. Jesus here was, was talking about he was, how he was going to ascend once again to the Father. Let us realize this morning that though Christ did come down to dwell with humanity for a time, in order to live the perfect life we couldn't live, die on that cross, rise again three days later, his ultimate goal was not for him to dwell here on earth with us, but for him to bring us up to be with him in heaven. And that is good news. That is good news for us who are saved. And that is great news that we can go and share with others, that there is an opportunity to be rescued from this earthly life. Also, realize Jesus' words. I will be with you a little longer. Jesus was only on earth for a short time, and likewise, we are only on earth for a short time. Because, mercifully, God has allowed us to come with him into heaven by his grace, which we will get to. So the first point about Jesus' divinity, Jesus is on earth no longer. But secondly, where is Jesus? Jesus is in heaven with the Father. He continues. He says, after, all right, I'm going to leave you, but then I am going to him who sent me. We know that the one who sent Jesus is God the Father. All throughout the book of John, we see Jesus referring to, to God the Father as the one who sent him, as Jesus in his humanity is obedient to the Father who sent him to dwell on earth, and his obedience to the cross, and his obedience to ascend back to be with the Father. What we realize this morning is that Jesus is now bodily in heaven, being worshipped and adored by all of the angels, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Jesus is not physically on earth any longer, and that's what he's getting at. He's saying, look, I'm on here for a short time to fulfill the purpose for which my Father sent me, but I am going back to him. And we realize and are grateful for the fact that he mercifully lets those who are saved in as well. But Jesus continues. He says, I'm not going to be here for long. I'm going back to the Father. But he teaches us two things about man's depravity as well. In verse 34. He says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So remember here that Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to all these people who have responded negatively to him. So Jesus looks at them and he says that you will seek me and you will not find me. So the, second, the first thing we learn about man's depravity is that worldly wise men cannot find Christ. Worldly wise men cannot find Christ. And this is very interesting, and to be honest with you, this was just a struggle for me this week, to try to really wrestle with what Jesus is saying here. And I think there's two levels to it, and I'm going to try to explain this. So, the first level, right? People are trying to arrest Jesus. So what they would have heard when Jesus said, you are not going to be able to find me, they probably thought he was just an excellent player of hide-and-go-seek, 
right? That Jesus is going to find some cave where he's going to go and nobody's going to be able to arrest him, right? I think that's what, what they would have thought Jesus was, was meaning. But that would have been worldly wisdom. Because Jesus is talking about something way greater here than a good hiding spot. Jesus is talking about how he is going to go to the Father, right? These men, they're going to look to persecute him. They're going to look to arrest him. But Jesus is going to be in a better place because Jesus' life cannot be taken from him. He laid it down on the cross, he rose again, and he ascended to the Father. So when these people try to kill his ministry, when these people try to kill his legacy, there will be no chance because he will be already reigning in heaven and will have sent the Holy Spirit. But I think also here, I think Jesus is getting at how there is a longing within the human heart for salvation. We all live in this world, and we know, because we have read scripture, right, that this world is broken, that this world is hurting, and that every person in this world has been touched with sin, has been touched by depravity, and no matter where you go, there are people looking for a solution. And I, I think there may be a hint of what Jesus is saying here is that in some weird, funky sense, these Pharisees who did not know Christ, these Pharisees who even hated Christ, were looking for him. Not in a sense of intentional yearning and longing for him, but in a sense they're looking for salvation, and Jesus can provide that. But ultimately there will be a day that comes where there will be no opportunity for salvation. And what I want to encourage you with this morning, and I think what part of what Jesus is trying to get at when he says, you seek me and you will not find me, is that eventually the opportunity for grace will run out. Eventually the judgment day will come and there will be no opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. So if you are in this room this morning and you have not yet repented of your sins and believed in the gospel, let me encourage you that you never know when your last day on this earth may be. And you never know when Christ will come. So repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. But the second point about man's depravity that I think Jesus is getting across is that worldly wise men cannot follow Christ. Not only will they not be able to find him, they won't be able to follow him. The doctrine of human depravity teaches us that men in their original sinful condition are both unwilling and unable to come to Christ in their own strength. Although these worldly wise men, right, these Pharisees and all the others, taught that salvation is found within, Christ revealed to them that, that salvation is found without. Notice what Jesus says. You, sinners, where you, where I am, you cannot come. Sinners cannot come to Christ in their own power. That's Jesus' point here. Not, they cannot come to Christ in their own strength. These Pharisees, these chief priests, the people who are teaching the religions of this world tried to find God in their own way. They tried to follow him, Jesus, back to heaven in their own way, right? But they could not. John 6, 65 says, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Grace always precedes our response to follow Christ. Worldly wise men cannot enter the kingdom of Christ. It's our second point for this morning. Our third point for this morning is that worldly wise men cannot understand the words of Christ. Worldly wise men cannot understand the words of Christ. Read with me verses 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? 
Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The Jews, in response to Jesus' teaching here, they ask three questions. First, they ask and say, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? They say, where in this world does this guy have a hiding place so good that we're not going to be able to catch up with him, that we're not going to be able to arrest him, that we're not going to be able to, for those who believe in him, not able to hear his teachings anymore? But secondly, they ask, does he not intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? This dispersion, what this is referring to, is all of the Jews that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The Jews that would have come to this feast were probably all from Israel, but there were Jews throughout all of the Roman Empire. So what the Jews said is, they said, well, maybe he's talking about going on this great road trip and and teaching the Greeks and the Gentiles and those who aren't from Israel directly. Maybe that's what he's talking about. And maybe when he's out there, we won't be able to find him. Maybe, Maybe that's what he's talking about. The interesting part about this is Christ never did this in his earthly ministry, you know, travel outside of Israel. But what he did do is he did minister to the Greeks. You see, the Jews, they would have hated the Greeks, they would have hated the Gentiles, and they would have thought it was awful for Jesus as a Jew to teach them, to to take the time out of his day to show them how to be saved. But that's exactly what Jesus did, especially in the Gospel of Luke, as we understand all of these Gentiles that Jesus reached out to. But lastly, verse 36, they... They just, they just raised their hands. They said, what does he mean? What does Jesus mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? The crowds here simply didn't understand. They were wise in the ways of this world, but they did not understand Christ's ascension. They did not understand Christ's gospel. They did not understand Christ's truth. Just like Mr. Worldly Wise Men These people thought that the things of Christ were utter foolishness. They did not understand them. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24 speaks of this. I'll read it for you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For those who are in Christ, all of these things make sense. Jesus saying that he will go to a place where we cannot follow him, right? That makes perfect sense. He's ascending to heaven, and we can only get there by the power of God. But the worldly wise men do not understand this. Apart from spiritual enlightenment, the men of this world will never comprehend the ways of God, the purposes of God, or the plans of God. Like a man trying to find his way out of the dark depths of a cave, the men of this world are stranded apart from the light of God. In their minds, Jesus' ascension into heaven is nonsense to them. His incarnation, his death, his resurrection are but a fairy tale. His teachings are nothing but lies, and his gospel is nothing but empty words. They stand hopeless, helpless, and heavenless 
apart from the grace of Christ. And although we understand that it is only God's power that can save them from their sins, how then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? For faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the greatest application of this text for this morning is that men cannot come to God unless we preach the gospel to them, and we will not preach the gospel to them unless we will preach the gospel to them. We've looked this morning about how worldly wise men are unable and ignorant to enter the kingdom of heaven. They hate the person of Christ. They cannot enter the kingdom of Christ, and they cannot understand the words of Christ. But what are we supposed to do with this? I walk through this text quickly, but I have three applications for us this morning. Three applications, three words. Praise, rejoice, and minister. Praise, rejoice, and minister. Firstly, in response to the truth that Jesus is reigning in heaven, we ought to praise him. Jesus Christ outrightly says here, look, I'm going to a place where you can't come on your own strength. I'm going to the place of the Father. I'm going to the place where I came from. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven now. He has come to earth to do his mission, but he has ascended again and is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And we ought to give him all of our adoration and praise. He is worthy, he is holy, he is mighty, and he is good. He has come down to save, and he has done what the Lord has given him to do. But secondly, in response to the truth that Jesus has welcomed us into heaven, we ought to rejoice in him. I was, <clears throat> I was reading with Samantha this morning in, in Matthew 19, or Matthew 18, and I got to find this verse here. Because as I, was, <clears throat> as I was doing this prep in John 7, I'm like, man, that's really harsh truth. Where I am, you cannot come. But we, by the mercy of Christ, have been enabled to go where we could not go in our own power. And in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus makes this clear. Sorry, Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them and said, looked at his disciples and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Right? With man, salvation is impossible, but with God, anything is possible. But with God, you can go to heaven, and but with God, your unbelieving neighbor, these worldly wise men, can go to heaven. So we ought to rejoice in the Lord who has extended his mercy to enable us to go where we would not be able to go apart from his grace. Lastly, In response to the truth that men are unable to enter heaven in their own strength, we must minister to them. The application of this truth that Jesus is getting across is not that we look at our unbelieving neighbors, these worldly wise men, and say, all hope is lost. The application of this truth is that we share his gospel with them. 
like I read in Romans, Romans 8, or Romans 10, rather. They can't call upon him whom they have not heard. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We must go out and proclaim the truth so that men who know not how to get into heaven can understand that the way is truly by mercy and by Christ's grace alone. So to get down to the nitty gritty, I want to leave you guys with, with two specific things you can do this week. Firstly, what is one person that you can share the gospel with this week? Not 25 people, not 10 people, not even five people. If you can share the gospel that many times this week, if the Lord so bestows upon you that opportunity to do that, praise the Lord. But who is one person that you can focus on this week? One person that you can pray about, one person that you can think about, one person who you can just say, hey, how can I pray for you and, and hope that that leads to a spiritual conversation? And secondly, what is one thing that you can do for the lost this week? Notice how in my application, I, I use the word minister. I didn't use the word evangelize, which evangelism is great. I'm not knocking evangelism, we should all evangelize. But so often we just blab the truth at people, right? How can we not only be the mouth of Christ, but his hands and feet as well? Is there a homeless man we can give a blanket to? Is there a neighbor we can just bake cookies for or invite over to dinner? Is there an unsaved coworker who we can ask how we can pray for them or, or maybe invite them out to coffee to just understand more about their life, right? How do we minister to the people that Christ blatantly says here, they cannot follow me into heaven? That is, unless they hear of the gospel and accept God's grace and repent of their sin. And when all is said and done, let us remember that the wise men of this world, who by the power and mercy of God may turn from their sins and follow Christ. Brothers and sisters, the, the application of this text is not to raise our hands in hopelessness and say, well, nobody can get into heaven. The application is to realize that Jesus has come and he has done the mission that he has accomplished on this earth. And though the things and the men, the men of this world do not understand the things of Christ, there is hope in the grace of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the truth, Lord, that you are now reigning in heaven. Lord, you have come um, to this earth for a short time, but Lord, you are now in heaven and you invite us to come with you, Lord, if we only repent and believe in your gospel. Pray that we would apply this to our lives. Pray that we would reach out to people that we know who are lost, that we might proclaim the things of you. For your glory. Amen.